Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, please check out my Amazon author page, where you can find my series of behind-the-scenes NYPD books for $10 paperback or $2.99 ebook download. And if you have Kindle Unlimited subscription, you can read my books for free including my new book, and it's so new that I haven't even gotten my author copy yet, called NYPD Laughing in the Line of Duty. And it's funny, since I released NYPD Laughing in the Line of Duty, I believe it was on November 12th, that by far is my fastest-selling book. Obviously, a lot has to do with it's the holidays are coming, and it's a $10 stocking stuffer. But I believe a lot of things with selling my books, a lot has to do with the title and the book cover, when you're a self-published author, you face a lot of issues as far as everything's on you. You have to write the book yourself. You have to find editing. You have to find someone to format the book for you. And then you have to find somebody to put together a book cover. And a lot of times, self-published authors, they go cheap on the book cover. And it comes back to bite them on the ass because think about it. If you, you, you're a self-published author and you get your book on, uploaded into the Amazon queue, and people are looking at books, and if you have it priced right, like I said, my books are $10 paperback, um, it's like going to the store and buying a bottle of wine, and you're not an accomplished drinker or a wine aficionado, and you're going to a party, and it's like, all right, I'm going to spend $10 on a bottle of wine. You don't know anything about wine, but if the, if the bottle of wine has a catchy name and you love the artwork, it's an impulse buy. You're going to say, you know what? Yeah, you know what? This will this will be something cool to bring to see so and so. And like I said, it takes a lot to put put a book together. And the thing I struggle with the most is I never get writer's block, but but it's it's the book title. I have no idea what what, what I'm going to name my book usually until almost it's 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 ready to go. And you know, it just, for whatever reason, I can't think of a title. And then once I get the title, I work with this company called ebooklaunch.com. And they're great. You fill out a form, you explain, you send them like a snippet of what your book is about. And you describe what you want. So NYPD laughing in the line of duty. I wanted a patrolman standing off to the side getting screamed at by a supervisor in a white shirt with a bullhorn behind a police barrier. And any NYPD cop that's ever worked a parade or a demonstration. It's happened to them a million and one times. So I figured that, that that would grab people's attention, and it has. So this week I'm going to tell a story. I've, I've, I've never put the story in any of my books because sometimes stories sound better when you tell them as opposed to writing them down. And I've told this story several times on different podcasts, so if you've heard the story before, please bear with me. But um, I call this the Hansel and Gretel story. And Hansel and Gretel, the German fable, was I think it was a brother and sister, and they're in the woods somewhere in Germany, and they knock on the door, and there's this witch there, and she invites them in, and then she starts giving them gingerbread cookies and stuff in an attempt to fatten them up because she has cannibalistic intentions, and then she wants to throw them in the oven and roast them, and I think the boy throws her in the oven, whatever. It's somebody getting thrown in an oven, and I, I have a story about that. So let's go back to the early 1990s, 1989, 1990. And, you know, my friends and I, we're going to cop bars. We're young guys. We're in our early 20s. And back then, especially in the Bronx, that's where I grew up, and that's where I worked my first couple of years, the Bronx was a great place. Well, certain parts of it, at least, especially the West Bronx, the East Bronx. 
And there were so many different cop bars. And the reason, like, why do they call it a cop bar? Because cops don't want to get involved in crime or fist fight. The last thing cops want to do after work, they just want to kick back with their friends, have a couple of drinks, and go home. And there were bars that would cater to the police. And one was Pauline's, which was on Broadway. And it really, it, it was right next door to the precinct. It was like the greatest thing in the world. You walk right out of the back parking lot of the 50th precinct in the Bronx, and Pauline's was on the corner. And what was unique about Pauline's, and this is before direct deposit. So cops, you know, especially if you're doing a 4 to 12, you'd get your check at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And if you, you know, you couldn't, your bank wasn't in the precinct, what were you going to do? So most cops would go to check cashing places. And the check cashing place would cash your check. Or what you could do in the Bronx, and everybody knew about this, you'd go to Pauline's. And Pauline was the owner. She was a middle-aged woman at the time, and her son, her son was the bartender. You would go there, and you would hand Pauline your check. And as long as you got a drink or something to eat, Pauline would cash your check, minus what you know, whatever you laid out on food and and, and beverage. And you get she, you'd go home with your you know with with money in your pocket. So it was a great system. There were other bars like that too. The Terminal. Anyway, I'm going to go into naming every bar in the Bronx, but. It was a fun time, and we were young guys and going out and meeting girls and having fun, and there was this one cop from another precinct, and uh, in his spare time, he was a magician. So he would do uh, children's parties and stuff. He was an amateur magician, and he used to work with a friend of mine, and they worked in the precinct next door, I believe it was the 52nd precinct, and what this guy would do is... You'd be at the bar talking to girls and stuff, and he would come over, and the next thing you know, you're talking to this chick, and he comes over, and he's pulling flowers out of his sleeve or pulling gold coins behind the ear. Essentially, he'd block, cock block you with magic. So I went up to his partner, who I knew a little bit, and I said, listen, can you get him out of here? How do you compete with this? And his partner starts laughing, and he goes, you know, it's funny. He goes, he's the greatest guy in the world. He says, but... He goes, he just, he's not into police work. He said, if he took his NYPD career as serious as he did making balloon animals for children or practicing card tricks in the radio car, he goes, he'd be a one-man crime fighter. He says, but unfortunately, this is really what he's into. It's like the police job just pays for the benefits and puts money in his pocket. So those two guys were partners, and they used to roll around the 52nd Precinct in the Bronx, and... um the 5-2, as we would call it, used to cover the Marshalloo section of the Bronx. And the Marshalloo section of the Bronx had a lot of six-story walk-up buildings that ran across Marshalloo Parkway. And back then, it was um, a lot of Irish immigrants lived there, and then you had some Hispanic people living there. It was a nice neighborhood. But like any nice neighborhood, you've always got people screwing around and doing things that they shouldn't. So there was a super of a building. And he lived in the basement apartment. And one day on a midnight, the, the magician and his partner get called to, to this apartment building in the basement. And it's calls for help. Now, back then, the 911 system wasn't set up to pinpoint what apartment things come from. It just can't, it just, the call was calls for help in the basement of this address. So the magician and my buddy go down into this basement. And there's two apartments in this underground lair. And, they go up to door number one, and they start banging on the door, and no one answers the door. So my buddy goes to knock on door number two, and the magician stops him. He goes, what are you doing? He says, well, we knocked on door number one. Let's knock on door number two. And the magician goes, no. He goes, come on. 
He goes, what are you going to knock on that door for? He goes, listen. He goes, it's after midnight. He goes, we came down here with our radios blasting, our nightsticks. We're making all sorts of noise. We're pounding on this door yelling police. He goes, don't you think if somebody was in that apartment and heard us out here, they wouldn't open the door? So my buddy goes, yeah, you're right. But you know what? Still. And he goes to knock on door number two again. And the magician stops him again. He goes, what did I tell you? He goes, come on. He goes, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Let's get out of here. If cops are cheap, you know, I, I, I was a cop. I'm not knocking cops for it. But we, you, come on, guys. You know you're cheap. You say free coffee. That kind of the world stops. So my buddy reluctantly takes the magician's advice. They walk back out of this underground lair. They go back onto the street. And they go on their way. But what they don't realize is behind door number two live the super. And in these buildings, you have the super of a building. And usually they live rent-free, usually in a basement apartment. And they're there in case anything goes wrong with the building. So if the heat goes out or a window gets broken, they fix it. Or if it snows, they shovel the snow out front. They're in charge of keep maintaining the building, and, and they live there usually for next to nothing or rent-free. So, so in door number two, where the super lived, he started selling cocaine out of the apartment. And, you know, he apparently he was selling quite a bit of it, and after a while he got addicted to the poison that he was pitching out of that building. And what happened was... He fell behind on payments to his wholesaler. So in the drug world, they don't send friendly notices like they're going to cancel your cable or emails or, you know, they're going to kill you. So what happens is the super knows he's got a problem. He's not really going out a lot. He's not answering his door. And these these people in the drug world send a couple of Albanian hitmen to kill him. So what they do is it's an old gypsy trick. They'll get an attractive female, and then they'll put the female in front of the door and knock on the door. The super looks out the window. He's a half a cokehead now anyway. He looks, he sees this beautiful woman standing outside, and he's saying to himself, found money. I mean, what are you, lucky me. I'm living in this basement apartment, and there's this beautiful woman outside. More than likely, she knows I'm selling coke out of here, and, you know, Maybe I, we can work something out. Instead of her giving me money, we can work this out with sexual favors. So he opens the door. It's the first time the guy's opening the door because he knows he's got a problem. When he opens that door, the two Albanian hitmen and the female push their way into the apartment. And now they're beating the crap out of the guy. They're pistol whipping him. They're knocking him around the apartment. Where's the money? Where's the drugs? He doesn't have the answers. So what they wind up doing is after giving this guy a beating and basically torturing him for a little while, they shoot him in the head. He falls down. They wrap him up in a carpet. They take him out of door number two. And in the basement of this building, you had the furnace that heats the six-story walk-up. They go in there and somehow open up that hot door and throw the super in and shut it. And this guy is going up like a fire log. They go back into the apartment, and now they're ransacking it. And then while they're ransacking it, the magician and my buddy are standing outside about to knock on door number two. So now these guys got a problem. They're in, the, they're in the super's apartment. They've just killed the guy. Probably people have heard shots. They're starting to panic inside. And um, the two hitmen inside the apartment devise a plan. And they tell the female who, she's not a babe in the woods. She's in, she's in this up to her neck. She knew what she was getting herself into. They tell her, look, this is what we're going to do. If those two cops start knocking on the door 
answer it. Open the door and just start panicking and crying and yelling in Yugoslavian. Chances are they're not going to understand Yugoslavian. And it was a railroad apartment. So to describe a railroad apartment, it's like if you ever, you know, on a train, it goes straight through. So when you open the door to a railroad apartment, it goes straight through, usually back to the kitchen. And the rooms are off to the side. A parlor might be off to the side. A bedroom's off to the side. The kitchen, well, the kitchen's usually in the back. So what these two guys did was they told the female, let them in and lead them. Lead them to the, to the back of the apartment, to the kitchen. When you pass these, the threshold of these two doors, throw yourself on the floor. We're going to come out from behind. We're going to shoot these two cops in the head. Then we're going to take them out of the apartment somehow, wrap them up in sheets or whatever, take them out and throw them in the furnace. Because at this point, in their mind, look, in for a penny, in for a pound. We've already killed one guy. Now we fully have to commit or we're never going to get out of here because we're going to spend the rest of our lives in jail. And more than likely they would for one body. So what's two more? A little bit more heavy lifting. So while they're in the apartment devising this plan, the two headmen go into each, each bedroom getting ready to shoot these two cops. They never knock on the door because the magician tells my buddy, hey, let's go grab a cup of coffee. So they leave. These guys ransack the apartment. I don't know if they found product or money in there. They spent a little bit of time in there looking around, sniffing around. They don't find anything. They leave. So a couple of weeks later, the super of the building, he has family. They didn't live with him, but, you know, people are calling up what happened to Oscar. You know, I tried calling Oscar. I went to Oscar's door. Oscar's nowhere to be found. So what the family does is they file a missing persons report, I believe with the 52nd precinct, and the cops come, they knock on the door, nobody answers. So now the detectives get involved. So apparently it was, because I know missing person cases get handled, especially with an adult, and it takes forever. And I'll tell another story about that on another episode, but probably the family really pushed this. So the detectives get involved. And the detectives, you know, they'll do what's called a workup on that apartment. And they're checking to see if the guy made police reports there. Did he, did this guy, was this guy filing police reports and someone was, you know, giving him a hard time? Had he been arrested before? Like, they're going, it's called victimology. They're kind of going backwards into this guy's life. And what they quickly realize is that this guy, there was a 911 call to the basement apartment. So what the first thing they do is they bring in the magician and my buddy, and they sit him down, and they go, listen, you know, about two weeks ago or whatever the time period had passed, you guys were called down to this basement apartment for calls for help. Did you, did you talk to anybody? Was anything out of line? Because probably what they did was when they left, they marked the call to the radio dispatcher as 90X, which means unfounded in NYPD terms. So, you know, th th these guys are going through their memo book entries, and um, I think it was my buddy says, you know, the funniest thing, we went down there, we knocked on one door, but we didn't knock on the other door. And he says, well, that's where the super lives. So they says, well, I don't know what to tell you, but, you know, nobody came out. We, we did our due diligence. We knocked, we made a lot of noise and said, all right. So you would think that the case would come to a grinding halt at that point, but the detectives were really, it was just a fluke. The detectives were really sharp and they just kept pressing the two cops about anything out of line. And uh, my buddy says, you know, I, I do remember something. When we were leaving the apartment, we came up, you know, we walked out, we came upstairs, and I noticed that there was a car parked right in front of the building on a fire hydrant, and before we left, 
I wrote it a, a, a you know a ticket for being parked on the fire hydrant. So the detective said, "Do you do you have you know when in the NYPD you get a summons book, you get you get a stack of summonses, and it's called a universal summons. So the white if if I remember this correctly, the first copy is a white copy where you write everything down, and then there's a couple of copies underneath it. I think um, the yellow is a moving violation. The pink." is um, for C summons, like pissing in the street or drinking beer. And then, so he goes, yeah, I wrote a parking ticket. So he goes through his receipts and he's going, yeah, he gives them a copy of it. Well, that was the getaway car. In their haste to kill this guy or rip him off or whatever they were going to wind up doing, they just pulled up, parked on the fire hydrant, went downstairs and whacked this guy. So with that, with that summons, they were able to trace that car to this female, it was it, the call was registered to the female that was in with, with the um, with the hit team. So they bring her in, and you know, I think at first she's like playing coy. I don't know. Someone borrowed the car. Then it was like, yeah, I parked there and went to see me. Her story keeps changing, and then eventually, what happens is she comes clean, and she rats out the two Albanian hitman. Of course, she's now trying to distance herself. I didn't know. Um, they just told me to give them a ride. They needed me as an interpreter. You know, she's trying to like make it look like I really wasn't that involved. But like I said earlier, you, you're involved in any aspect of the planning, covering up of a homicide. Look out, you're in. I mean, it's, it's there's, there's no like just kind of putting your pinky toe in with a robbery or killing somebody. You, you're in up to your neck. So she she rats out her friends, and they lock her up. Then they're able to track down the two Albanian hitmen. They lock them up. They get all arrested for the homicide. But so now, where's the body? So what the detectives had to do, and this was in the dead of winter. It was actually in January or February. What they had to do was they had to go back to that building, shut the shut the um, the furnace off, and let it cool down for several days until that you know, red hot furnace cooled down enough that they could go in there and they were able to recover the guy's skull and bones. So, I mean, you know, the guy kind of put himself in hot selling drugs out of that apartment and, you know, it came back to bite him in the ass and he wound up getting burnt up. So that's my Hansel and Gretel story. Um, I think, uh, no, you know what? I think that is in one of my books. Oh, I know what it is. I, I, um, the, the title, I think it's in uh, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. I think it's called Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. So, you know, that's, you know, it's unfortunate that people screw around with drugs and do things they shouldn't do. And again, it'll come back to bite you in the ass. So that's my police story for the day. But I, I've got something else to add. So don't, don't leave just yet. Let me say my thank yous to people. And then I got a, a, another interesting story. So I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. And I've noticed new listeners on my show from uh, Buzzsprout uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, Chicago, Illinois, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Danbury, Connecticut. Now, speaking of Danbury, this kind of jogged my memory. There's a federal prison up in Danbury. And back in the day, it was like... Before the federal prison system got filled with like drug dealers and prison gangs, they used to call it club fed or white collar crimes. But you know, now you got bank robbers and drug lords and El Chapo and old mafia guys in there. So I mean, it's a rough federal prison is not um, a cakewalk anymore. It's a rough place. So anyway, I just this just reminded me as I was putting this monologue together. Um, you know, I, I, I always encourage people to contact me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So last week, I get this email from this sketchy-looking profile, and it says, Hey, Vic, love your show. 
Um, could you give a shout out to your listeners, your your listeners, former law enforcement listeners that are incarcerated incarcerated in prisons? We listen to your show on smuggled in um, cell phones, and we love the show. And you know, it keeps us upbeat. You know. He didn't say what correctional facility he was in. He didn't say if it was, I don't think it was, I don't know if he said it was federal or state. I don't even remember, but I didn't get back to the guy. But so if you're listening to federal correctional facility, please don't because you're going to get in trouble. Listen, I don't want to get in trouble and I don't want to get anybody else in trouble. And uh, if you work in law enforcement and you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to me. Or if you got a question on Twitter or Instagram, at Vic Ferrari five zero, and as I stated earlier, a couple of weeks ago, um, for those of you true crime people out there, Richard Kuklinski, the Ice Man, the guy that was going around killing people, and then what he would do is he was he 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 portrayed himself as like a contract killer when he really wasn't. He had a little bit of um, he had a little bit of familiarity or history with the DeMeo crew out in Brooklyn. I think he purchased a couple of guns off of Roy DeMeo. And he was in the um, pornography business when pornography was illegal. He used to make illegal bootleg films. So that's how he was affiliated with the DeMeo crew. But I do not think at all that he was doing hits for those guys. I mean, that crew had like 10, 15 guys that each had 10, 15 bodies on them. Why would they have to subcontract to a Polish guy from New Jersey? And the thing about Richard Kuklinski was... He lived out in Dumont, New Jersey. And at the time, when I was a child, my aunt lived in Dumont, literally down the block from his house. So when that story broke about this guy that was killing people, it was, he wasn't a serial killer. What, he, what Kuklinski was is he was a knockaround guy. I don't think he was a, really like an, a mob associate. What he would do is he was involved with a burglary and car theft ring. And they, I, I think at the time they were stealing Corvettes and either chopping them or changing the VIN numbers on them for resale. And he had a bunch of dirtbags that would run around with him that were, that, you know, stealing these cars. And whenever these guys got arrested or got subpoenaed to the grand jury or, or whatever, whenever he thought that anybody in his crew was feeling the heat, they had to be eliminated. And um, what he would do is he would poison them. He shot a couple of them, but a, a few of them he realized, you know what, I might as well poison him. And he quickly figured out that cyanide usually doesn't come up in toxology unless you're looking for it. So what he would do is somehow he got his hand on some, some cyanide and he poisoned a couple of these guys. And one guy, this is a sick story, one of the guys in his crew, he's hiding him out in a motel room out in Bergen County, New Jersey. And, you know, he's like bringing him food and don't worry, I got you covered, we're going to get you a good lawyer. Yeah, he's rocking the guy to sleep. He's just kind of, you know, yeah, no problem, I got this covered, don't worry about it. And one day when he brings him food, I think it was McDonald's, he puts cyanide in the guy's hamburger. And, he, and, you know, he's sitting in the room with the guy watching TV and then the guy drops dead in this motel room in Bergen County. And what he does is, as opposed to getting the guy out of the um, motel room, he takes the bed apart and the box spring and everything, and he takes the body, and he hides it in the bed, then puts the box spring back together, throws the mattress on it, and people were coming and going, you know, it was a short-stay motel, it's not like they were staying at, at, at a Hilton, it was a short-stay motel, but people are going and going, sleeping on that bed, and there's a guy rotting underneath there, and probably about the second or third day, when the guy's just starting to decompose, 
you know, housekeeping <laughs> goes to turn the mattress. The smell is still there. They lift the box spring, and then there's this poor son of a bitch that's been dead rotting underneath there. So eventually Kuklinski gets arrested, goes to jail for the rest of his life. The reason I'm telling this is I've been in contact with the ATF agent, this guy Dominic Palafrone, who went undercover with the New Jersey State Police. It was a joint case, and he befriended this guy, Kuklinski, the Iceman. He's going to tell his story, but basically I think Kuklinski wanted guns or was looking to sell guns. So Palafrone played like a, a mob-associated guy, and he was in the business of looking for guns. So he bought a couple of guns off of Kuklinski, and then Kuklinski wanted more cyanide. So they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get you cyanide. But what was going on in the background, Kuklinski was looking to kill Agent Palafrone just to kind of, yeah, I bought the cyanide off of him. I made a couple of money selling him a couple of guns, and, you know, he, he, he would have been a loose end because at this point, he was when Kuklinski wound up getting pinched in the early 80s, you know, I, I'm guessing he was pushing 50. You know what I mean? He was probably coming to an end of his criminal career, and he just didn't want any loose ends anymore. So I'm guessing that's why he wanted to kill this agent. So anyway, Agent Do Dominic Palafrone, I'm going to be in contact hopefully this week, um, and maybe I can get him on next week or the week after. That's going to be a really good show. I mean... I watched the, uh, and you can look it up on Netflix. It's called um, The Iceman Tapes, and Palafrone is on there. I mean, this is decades ago, but it, Kuklinski lies a lot. But, I mean, they're, they're, the truth is somewhere in the middle, and hopefully, you know, Agent Palafrone will be able to tell us all about it. So if you enjoyed the content, check out my Amazon author page. Type in my name, Vic. Ferrari like the car, and all my NYPD books will come in, come up. They're all ten dollar paperback, two ninety nine ebook download, and they make great Christmas gifts or stocking stuffers. And this book is an NYPD, but it's called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's got a picture of me getting chased out of a confessional by a priest. No, I wasn't molested, but I was a wise ass. And when you confess one sin too many as a teenager, it can lead to a foot chase to an empty church, and it did. So I want to thank you, everyone, again. I'm thrilled that you listen to my show. I'm getting about 500 downloads a week, and it means a lot to me. And uh, thank you for tuning in. Have a great weekend, and I'll have another episode up next week.